Hey, welcome to the podcast. Jamie West here for Scott Thompson uh, today. Coming up on the podcast, uh, there have been rallies and events held all across Ontario to protest the cuts to legal aid. We're going to talk with Hugh Tai, who's uh, with the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic, about that latest mess created by the provincial government. Also on the show today, Canada's greenhouses, the people that grow vegetables and flowers, are having a tough time keeping their workforce in place because the pot growers are grabbing up all the labor and they're paying them big bucks. Mark Marvin Ryder will be here, business professor in the DeGroote School of Business, to talk about that. And also on the show, we're going to bring you up to date on the results of that inquiry into the Elizabeth Wetlawfer case. She's the one woman who murdered eight people in a long-term care facility down in London. We'll talk to our reporter down there. All part of the podcast today here with Jamie West on 900 CHML. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I, the thing I love about doing talk radio these days is every day I, I get to come on and dump on the Doug, Doug Ford government about something new. And today is no different. Uh, legal aid cuts of 30%, you know, were announced uh, in April. Um yeah, in April, the progressive conservative government slashed nearly 30% of the organization's budget and said it could no longer use provincial funds for refugee and immigration cases. Um, and there have been protests all over, pop-up protests going on, and uh, rallies and events were held uh, across this province to protest uh, uh, the cuts. And the question is, uh, how how badly is is our area affected? That's the that's the question I want to know. How badly is our, our area affected? You know, the truth of the matter here is that the only people that can afford justice in any kind of court system in anywhere in our country are people that can pay for it. If you can't pay for justice, you don't get any justice. Joining me on the line is Hugh Ty. He's a Hamilton community. He's with the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic. Hugh, are you there? Are you okay? Yes, I am here, Jamie. Thank oh, you. All right. Um, so I, you know, I just said that the only people that can get justice in our system are the people that can afford to pay for it, and I believe that to be absolutely true. And for people that, you know, anybody that's got to be self-represented, they don't have a chance. They really don't. And the justice system can sit up and say, "Well, no, they can do their thing." But it's not true. Legal aid is important. How bad is this for Hamilton? Well, it's it's uh, serious at the moment, and going forward could be even more significant. And that's part of the reason we had the Day of Action yesterday. So we know that, for example, the implementation of the budget cuts this year, there are $130 million to legal aid across the province. Um, for example, immigration services were immediately... Uh, stopped being delivered by the, the province. Um, um, huge numbers of injured workers are now being denied services because the specialty clinics in Toronto uh, were hit hard with budget cuts of almost 45%. Locally, um, we are slightly better off than our sister uh, community legal clinics in Toronto. Uh, because this particular government took a whack at Toronto, as they have in other areas. Um, we have had a small reduction in services from our clinic, uh, where I work, and I'm the executive director. Are you a uh, lawyer? I am a lawyer okay. and the executive director. So we um, we had to m implement a budget 
cut that uh, we had to absorb and we had a retirement in the spring and a couple of parental leaves and so uh, we haven't filled uh, one position. We've reduced another one to uh, part-time uh, during the, the other person's leave while well, we try to figure out exactly how we can adjust and get ready for the next round of cuts because more cuts have uh, already been promised for the next two fiscal years. I just can't see how this can, like so many other things with this government, th- this absolutely makes no sense. I, 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 I you know, I kind of scoff at the undertone uh, of the, uh, the press secretary for Ontario's attorney general, this uh, Janessa Krugnally, who, who says, uh, who really kind of suggests that, you know, legal aid's too fat, that you lawyers are making too much money off of it, that it's a wind, she calls it a windfall mm. for lawyers, and she refers to outdated bureaucracies. Okay, fine. I'll be the first one to say, that, you know, the court system, the legal system is outdated. It does need to get with it. It does need to modernize. It does need mm-hmm. to use technology better. Mm-hmm. But this idea that it's a windfall for lawyers is is total crap. And uh, and I'm not. I'm the last one to defend lawyers. Yeah. But, well, but, I, would, I would totally agree with you on that, Jamie. This this is not a. Um, you guys aren't making a, a fortune a doing this. No, <laughs> yeah. no. And certainly in the work that I do in the legal clinic, people are doing it because they're committed. Right. They're passionate. It's a vocation. It's, exactly. It's, we're the not calling. A, make a lot of money. The folks that I went to law school with <laughs> and working elsewhere are making a lot more money. Yeah. Um, so we're very committed to serving the community. And that's why we're so upset and concerned about this, because we know how how marginalized communities, vulnerable people are going to suffer as a result. Because that's the point that you made off the top, that self-representation is so difficult for people. It's, the court system is confusing. The administrative tribunal system is confusing. And you are dealing with uh, an issue that is emotional, it's stressful. And so not to have the support of an advocate makes a huge difference in the outcome. And we know outcomes um, can change the rest of your life. I mean, in a criminal setting, you know, that, that can be imprisonment or, or whatever. Right. And if you're applying for a disability benefit or, or challenging your landlord's uh, eviction application, the, the outcomes are very, very serious. And the, and the difficulty, Hugh, is that, uh, you know, a lot of people listening to the program have never touched the system. They've never been involved in the system. And until you are involved... Uh, in it, uh, you you really you you think that it works like it does on TV, where everything is wrapped up in a thirty-minute a television program from begin beginning to end, or a sixty-minute television program. As you point out, um, the process alone, the legal processes alone, the court system alone, can literally uh, I won't even go as far as to say can stress people out to the point where they they're, they they die. It's that it's that big a deal here. Oh, a lot of people just give up. It's, uh, they just can't deal with the stress of it and not understanding how the system is working. And try doing that if, uh, if English or French isn't your first language on top right. of everything else. So it's, uh, it's definitely can, can stand for some improvement. Nobody's denying that. But by cutting funding to legal aid... It's the opposite outcome because Canadian Bar Association did a report a few years ago that said that for every dollar invested in legal aid, the government saves six dollars somewhere else. Right. So by taking every dollar that they're taking away, it's costing them six dollars. So it's it, it doesn't make any financial sense. No, they should have they should have listened to the professionals like yourself 
And I would suggest, and I don't have any evidence of this in front of me, but I my guess is, uh, based on various media articles I've read over time, the justices are pretty frustrated, uh, too, about the lack of funding there, uh, to the point where sometimes they'll they'll chastise a litigant for having wasted valuable resources that could yeah. be used for other people that really uh, need it through legal aid. So, so if you've got the judiciary uh, upset as well, and I don't know whether they've got any kind of a you know a, a united voice of you know reaching out to government at this mm. point or whatever. Mm. But the point is this: it, it, a thirty percent cut is insane. What they should have done is increase it by at least fifty percent and consulted with the very people that are in there every day, like yourself, other lawyers, justices, to say, what do you need here? What do we need to make this system work better for everyone? Tell us what it is you really need. I mean, you're all. You know, justices are conservatives, generally speaking. A lot, you know, the the law profession is uh, overall kind of a conservative mm-hmm. uh, entity. Uh, so it's not like you guys are in the business of wasting uh, of wasting money. And you know, there'll there'll be there'll be people listening who will oversimplify it all, Hugh, and say, ah, a bunch of lawyers. You know, as soon as they hear the word lawyer, mm-hmm. they think. Well, you just got a license to print money. They're just greedy. They're, 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 you know, they think about all of that. They think about the hourly rate that lawyers charge, and they, and they, that's all they think about. But it's mm-hmm. wrong. Consult the professionals. Ask them what the system needs. Same thing over in healthcare, and 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 then make changes. This is nuts. Well, that's what we're hoping that the new attorney general, Doug Downey, who's just you know taken on the portfolio. Uh, is now, we understand, starting to reach out a little bit. So his predecessor, um, Mulroney, was not doing that. But we're hoping that he's going to take some time to think about this and and maybe step back from the planned financial cuts over the next couple of years and, and really take stock of what's going on. And as you say, listen to the experts and make intelligent decisions that make financial sense as well as service sense. So make courts and tribunals as efficient as they can be and, the, and provide adequate services yeah, to those you, who are using you, them. You want to save money? Um, invest in technology, communications technology uh, within the courts uh, that allow people, uh, and when I say people, I mean the professionals, the people that work within the system, to communicate easier without reams and reams and reams of paper being faxed everywhere like mm-hmm. you're living it you're living in a fax world and i don't think people know that like it's insane <laughs> it's just insane how cumbersome it is we can move information at our fingertips in a second but the court system uh you know takes months and months and months to to do the same thing it's People have no idea, but you guys need more help. The justice system is fairly conservative. It's very slow to move, and you're absolutely right. Technology is an area where we can all benefit from some important changes. We can, you know, the e-filing, for example, of of, uh, materials to the courts is only just starting uh, to be implemented, and and we need to be doing much more of that. Well, right. And again, back to the point, which is you're, you're cutting the budget of legal aid. If anything, you should be investing more in it for now to help the professionals make the changes that they recommend are made to make the system work better, saving money at every turn. Mm-hmm. But no, they're going to create a false... Well, not a false. The government's going to create a crisis here, which they've done. And then they're going to ride in, like has been their pattern all along in other other ministries, 
at the last minute they're going to say oh we've changed our mind because people will get up in arms and they'll change their mind but in the meantime you guys have to go through all of this i feel sorry for you hugh uh i really do but thank you uh, very much for your time today i appreciate it well thanks for having me on all right take care bye for now Take care. bye there's uh, hugh ty uh with the hamilton community uh, legal clinic makes me nuts that this government continues to make these insanely boneheaded uh, decisions. Um, you know, what's the old word? Uh, you know, I don't know what the, ben, it's one of those Ben Franklin things, save a penny, lose a pound, or something like that. Uh, penny wise, pound foolish, that's what it is. Sheepers. Only had one coffee today. That's the problem with me. I gotta caffeinate more. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Have you heard this story? Canada's greenhouse greenhouse uh, labor shortage is worsening. I didn't even know there was a labor shortage, but apparently it's worsening because pot growers are uh, stealing all the labor. Joining us is Marvin Ryder, business professor in the Degroot School of Business, McMaster University. Hi, Marvin. Hello there, Jamie. I thought you were normally shirtless on a patio uh, during the summer, aren't you? <laughs> on a patio, shirtless, not so much. Okay. There are ob- still, I, there, I think there still are obscenity laws. I think it's okay to go topless, but there still are obscenity laws, and nobody wants to see that. All right. Um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, th- I didn't know that there was a problem uh, with uh, with greenhouse uh, labor shortages. I have no clue how, how many of those jobs we're talking about or anything like that, but I suppose at face value, you, Marvin, I, I guess it makes sense when you've got a new industry uh, with lots of people jumping in and growing a plant that uh, all of a sudden there's going to be a bit of competition for uh, good people to work those greenhouses. Sure. Well, first, let me, if you don't mind, I'll just pull back a little Please. bit to say that a story that we don't talk often enough about is a general labor shortage in the agricultural sector, that, that there are many farmers uh, growing seasonal crops, apples, peaches, pears, plums. Um, you know, tobacco, things like this that have to be harvested, and they almost always report a shortage of, of laborers, and this is what leads to Canadians being able to bring in foreign laborers, many of them coming in from Caribbean, but some from Mexico, other places that are happy to work these jobs that, I hate to say it quite like this, but that many Canadians don't like working, even though they can make a good wage at it because it's manual labor and, it, it, you know... It's dirty, it's, it's hot, it's tough. It's taught right, all those things, it's harder to do. Now, a greenhouse job actually is not as difficult as a field laborer. You're in a more controlled environment. You're not going to get rained on and wind blowing on you, what have you. Uh, so, but there's no surprise there's a shortage. Now, it's been exacerbated by the legalization of marijuana, and this is an industry that, for lack of a better term, just went boom a year ago. Remember, it was all grown in secret and quietly and black market, and now we've made it legal. So it's like opening the Wild West to a, a land rush. Everybody and his brother is trying to create these legal greenhouses. They all need labor. And because they've gotten all this money on the on the financial markets, lots of banks and other people are willing to bank on them, they're paying very, very good wages, wages that are nearly $30 an hour. Wow. Well, when your minimum wage is at $14 wow. an hour, or even you know a good-paying job that isn't minimum wage might be $18 an hour, you can see where people would be attracted. And if I'm 
growing flowers in a greenhouse or hothouse tomatoes, what have you, and maybe I'm paying $18 an hour, which was a good wage, suddenly I'm not as competitive, and that's where the shortage gets exacerbated. So these pot growers, then, if if I follow simple economics, and I've listened to you over the years, and of course you're going to tell me I'm completely wrong when I finish making this statement, but if I hear you correctly, what's going to end up happening is, um, in order to compete, the vegetable growers are going to have to start paying the 30 an hour, and then I'm going to start paying through the nose for my peaches, plums, pears, and tomatoes. Well, that is a scenario. Now, I think there's a second scenario here, and that is that this market, this cannabis market, is still very wild and woolly. We need to remember it only opened legally less than a year ago in October of last year. So this may be more of a temporary crunch than a permanent crunch. Uh, eventually we're going to have some winners, we're going to have some losers. As you know, there's a, a cannabis grower um, down in uh, Thorold uh, called CanTrust. They've run into some problems with Health Canada. There are 350 jobs there, but in theory they could be wiped out tomorrow because of the mistakes that they have made. So there's going to be some people you know, coming in, some people going out, a little too much hype here, a little too much there. And I expect this is choppy waters for a year or two, but I also think it's going to settle down. Uh, and here's the other thing. I also think that these high wages they're paying may moderate a little bit, meaning that you know in these early days they're they're paying too much. Right. We got to get people in here. Yeah, yeah. And then now now the oh wait a minute you know we've got to improve our margins because of course right. the way the government runs this everything is capped. I can't charge you whatever I want for. For cannabis, I have to charge within government policy, so how do I make a profit? Well, i got to start working on my costs. So I think this is more of a two- or three-year temporary problem than necessarily a permanent adjustment. But you're right. In the short term, if I have to get it, I either bring in foreign labor who loves my job at $18 an hour, or I'm going to have to start paying 24 and that means you're going to pay more for your tomatoes. Right. And, you know, I kind of equate this uh, this cannabis thing to the Yukon gold rush in the Wild West because, yes. because you know, in the, in the old Wild West, uh, it was fairly lawless or the laws were pretty thin. And, and, and I would say with the legalization of marijuana, uh, the laws are pretty thin. We had a lawyer on yesterday talking about how it really is disjointed and there is a lot of confusion and there is a lot of uh, uh, controversy and contradiction uh, within the legislation as well. And as you pointed out, um, you know, a a company like the one you mentioned uh, there could be wiped out by overstepping their bounds uh, at all, you know, and and that would cost all of the all of those jobs. But there, but there really does this re- thing really does have a Yukon Gold Rush feel to it, oh, doesn't it? Ab- absolutely, Jamie. I, you know, in my lifetime, I can't really think of another industry that opened the way this happened last October. Maybe you know the dot com stuff. Maybe suddenly we fell in love with the internet, and in the late 1990s, around 2000, there was that dot com boom, and you'll remember what followed was the dot-com bust. We see the same thing with the gold rush. There is this boom for the gold rush for a while, and then that easy gold pans out, and then it falls the other way. I suppose if you go way, way back when the United States had prohibition and then lifted prohibition, the alcohol industry went through something like that. It's all settled down. So I think some of this is that Wild West mentality. Nonetheless, 
you have a difficult situation within the greenhouse market in the agricultural sector. There are jobs there that go wanting. People don't take them. And that situation has gotten worse, certainly in 2019, probably in 2020 as well. It's funny. The very people that complain about immigration and uh, and, and immigration stealing jobs and so on and so forth, they're the same people that won't take a job at, at $18 an hour uh, working in a greenhouse that makes fl- uh, that grows flowers uh, or, or vegetables. And they, they'll, they'll blame the the immigrants that come in from the caribbean or other other parts of the world who who view that as their yukon gold rush you know it's it's a funny funny thing uh uh how we view uh jobs and opportunities um in in this country don't you think if you don't mind i'll just change it ever so slightly so as you probably know most of your listeners probably know that canada today has the lowest unemployment that we've had since the mid-1970s, and really since we've been tracking unemployment numbers. Now, when I tell you that the employment is running at around 5.2%, 5.4%, that sounds bad, but actually people like me would describe that as an economy that's operating at full employment. There's always a little bit of flux. You know, sometimes it's caused by companies coming and going, failing. People get out of a job or seasonal or other sorts of things. But really, when only 5% of your people are unemployed, it means everyone's pretty much got the job they want. That also means that jobs that are just not as popular, and we mentioned some in the agricultural sector, but clearly there would be other kinds of occupations that are not, you know, not seen as prestigious. Uh, those are the ones that get in trouble when you have full employment because people can be more choosy. Uh, and I think it's also worth noting this is why we need a government that has this flexibility to allow people to bring in workers from other places who say, well, I'm, I'm still happy to do that job. I don't want to necessarily become a Canadian citizen. I don't plan to be here 12 months a year, but I'll follow the harvest and I'll work for three or four months. It's also interesting, Jamie, I, I have friends who work in agriculture. My roots go back to agriculture how many of those workers who come in get paid in Canadian dollars, but what they do is they convert those dollars into goods that they buy, and then they ship those goods back home, because, again, that's a better way for them to transport than taking the cash. So it creates a secondary spinoff. These people, unlike other people who might bank the money, they're actually spending the money locally and then sending the goods back as well. Great point, Marvin. As always, you are, you always bring education to this table, and we appreciate it. Thanks so much for your time today. Anytime, Jamie. All the best. Bye-bye. There's uh, Marvin Ryder, business professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, we're going to go down to London now to our reporter, Andrew Graham, with uh, Global News Radio 980 CFPL in, in London. Andrew, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Jamie. So, what what came out of uh, the news conference today, um, and, and uh, was there any reaction that you noted in the room uh, among family or anybody else with a with a stake in this? Well, it's been an emotional process for these uh, family members. I mean, again, you have to remember this has been going on for years now for them, uh, whether it be the trial or the injury. So, hearing this, I mean, one would hope it brings them a little closure, but it's hard to say. But after what came out of it, ninety-one recommendations, as you said. And these are all aimed at preventing, you know, similar tragedies from happening in the future because the blame isn't on any one person or any one organization. Uh, the blame is on the system as a whole. The systemic vulnerabilities is what they call them. Was there, were there any, um, you know, were there a couple of things you could point to that came out of this that, because that, everybody's wondering, well, what are a couple of the recommendations? Um, are they, you know, are they suggesting, for example, that, security be tightened up, that kind of thing, in long-term care facilities. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, some of the highlights include a, a call for an increased number of registered staff in the long-term care home. That's something people have been pushing for for a long time across all nursing uh, nursing divisions. Um, they also want to strengthen medication management. Um, so that means, you know, uh, dealing with insulin and other drugs that are kept in the home. And they also want to improve uh, the incident analysis for possible insulin overdoses. So that means um, more thorough death reports, more death investigations, and even submitting these death reports online electronically so that they can track trends, data, spikes, clusters, whatever it is. Because if they had this data available, you know, that may have been able to help investigators, you know, catch these crimes before they happened or catch them the crimes as they were happening. Because, again, another big thing that came out during today's um, news conference was that had Wetlaufer never confessed to her crimes or turned herself into police, uh, the crimes would have would have gone undiscovered, never never been discovered. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a sick irony that the the perpetrator of these horrendous crimes actually ends up being the person who probably will have the most effect uh, on the improvement of the system overall by virtue of that fact. Exactly, and that's one thing uh, the commissioner of the public inquiry uh, really pointed out. She wants this to be, you know, uh, pointed to as a as a fundamental change, really, a uh, bringing change for the whole system um, and really to become a reference point for all long-term care homes in Ontario. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite a story, and uh, I appreciate you spending some time with us, uh, Andrew, uh, filling us in on uh, the highlights of, of the results today. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Take care. There's Andrew Graham, who is uh, a reporter with uh, Global News Radio 980 CFPL in London. Marissa Lennox is the Director of Stakeholder Relations with the Canadian Association of Retired Persons. Uh, Marissa, thanks for being here this afternoon. Thank you for having me. What's your reaction to uh, the results of the inquiry so far? Well, listen, the commissioner today, you know, she painted a picture of a system that is deeply in need of real transformative change, a system that clearly at every turn failed to protect each of what offers victims. You know, she spoke about the, the fact that there was not one individual actor responsible, but rather a series of systemic failings in the system that not only prevented wet lawfers killing spree, but actually enabled it. Frankly, many of our CART members, 80% are either in long-term care or have a loved one in long-term care, and they have little confidence that in this current environment, this couldn't happen to them. So we welcome these recommendations. I believe this report was incredibly comprehensive and thorough, and now the work needs to be done at the ministry level to make sure that they're actually implemented. Do you believe that they will take these recommendations seriously, or was their presence in London today, uh, a lot of the, the, the government officials were there, uh, was that purely political? Do you actually believe they'll, they'll take these recommendations seriously and put them in place? Because it's going to cost money to do that. And this government so far is showing that they don't like to spend money on anything uh, that's important to people's health. This government has talked about a need to cut back on health spending, and that would be uh, the wrong way to approach this report. This report opens the door for real change in things like staffing and funding. And so I can only say that today the report was released. Let's wait until, uh, you know, next week. Let's hear what the, what the ministry says, how the government responds to this. Let's give them a day to go home, pour through it, and hope that they come back with some real actionable uh, 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 steps to, to move this forward. I can't say one way or another whether I know they're going to implement it. They've talked about the need to transform long-term care. I hope that they take this seriously. Marissa, the, the characterization of the long-term care system is, is one of 
it being under strain or strained but not broken. Would you agree with that? It's a good question. I have often referred to this system as broken because of the very many systemic failings within it. Um, in terms of it being strained, absolutely. We know that long-term care, our healthcare system just generally is chronically short-staffed. Now, this commissioner talked about the need for increasing the number of registered staff in long-term care. We've long called for mandatory staffing ratios. In fact, 93% of our members are staunchly in support of increasing the number of staff in long-term care. It's a combination of nursing staff as well as appropriate levels of personal support workers. It's hard to believe, but right now, the only legislated requirement in long-term care is that there be one registered nurse at all times, and a lot of homes don't even meet that requirement. So when we talk about... Uh, Staff being strained, absolutely, it's it's unfortunate. And indeed, that was one of the things that contributed to Elizabeth Letlaw for being able to continue to murder on, over and over again. Yeah, and and um, you, you know, ask families or or the person that's in long term care uh, how important uh, it is to have a nursing support uh, there. Um, you know, to not have it there, you realize very quickly how, how bad things are. And, and again, it's like a lot of things until you're involved in the system, you don't realize. And, mm -hmm. uh, more and more of our population is going to be involved in that system. And so maybe the timing of this isn't, isn't too bad. Uh, I just hope they can move quickly to implement these recommendations and make some changes. And we agree. But the thing is, is that we've seen this wave happening for the last 20 years. Right. Uh, we knew that there would be an increase in people uh, putting uh, a, more stress on the long-term care system, on our health system, and we did not adequately prepare for it. Um, so again, I think a lot of these recommendations that came out of this inquiry, things like uh, ensuring that the, even the registered staff that are on um, that are working in the long-term care homes actually have the right behavioral support training to deal with the increasingly complex needs of members in long-term care, things like that. Or even, you know, some of the other shortages we saw, some of the other deficiencies in the system we saw was, for example, uh, the, the coroner refusing to conduct an autopsy because, of course, he says uh, no death in long-term care is unexpected, a comment dripping with ageism. We need to completely rethink how we do long-term care. We need to turn it on its head and completely transform it because truly people forget this isn't an institutionalized factory that we send people to eventually die. And a lot of people think it is. It is their home. This is where they are meant to live with dignity, love, and support. And we need to make sure that at a minimum we provide that for them. You and know, there's it, no cost that is too high for that. You just hit the nail on the head. I was about to ask you if, if you feel that ageism is, is rampant because to me, that's exactly how it feels. And the way you described it is perfect. To me, it just feels like um, we're, we're, we're still taking the approach that once you get to a certain age, you're of no use to us anymore. Off you go to the, the big bricks and mortar warehouse and uh, otherwise sometimes called the departure lounge. And, and you're abandoned. Uh, these people a lot of times are, are abandoned by their families. Not always, but a, a lot of people are. And you nailed it. They need to go into these facilities and be cared for uh, with dignity and love the way they would be cared for when they came into the world. And, 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 you know, we often say that we kind of, human beings revert back to the kind of the way they were, the helplessness that they had when they were born as, as babies and infants. Well, what if we switched our minds and thought of our elderly loved ones that way? And, and you know, if we did, we certainly wouldn't treat them the way that we do now. 
Absolutely. You know, last year it was revealed that violence and abuse in long-term care has jumped 150% in just six years. Even reports of resident-on-resident violence have increased. Um, So the evidence is clear. Long-term care homes are chronically understaffed and many of the staff are inadequately trained to deal with the increasingly complex needs of long-term care residents. And I think that, too, uh, we're not seeing... Um, enough people going into the field of aging, whether it's geriatrics, geriatric um, uh, nursing or or, or, uh, uh, palliative care. So I think that we completely need to rethink the field of aging, what happens when people age, and revert away from this sort of ageist mentality that, oh, they're just going to die anyway, because it's not right. In fact, when when we think about even Elizabeth Wetlawford's victims, the commissioner made the point that these people had days left to live, had months, maybe years left to live, and they were living a good life. That it wasn't, it wasn't their time to die. A lot of people think of it as just sort of mercy killing. These people weren't just waiting to die. They were living a good life. It wasn't mercy killing. We, it was murder, period. Exactly. Exactly. 100%. Marissa Lennox, uh, Director of Stakeholder Relations with the Canadian Association of uh, Retired Persons. Thanks so much for this. I appreciate your time. I appreciate the interview. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson podcast available on Apple podcast and Google podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson and thanks for listening.